Well, it's so good to see all of you. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, and for all of you dads out there, I really hope this is a really good Father's Day for you, and thank you for being with us this morning. Mark chapter 12, I was doing a little reading and ran across a guy by the name of Craig Larson who recounts a story of when he was dating his wife that uh, that summer while they were dating, uh, she got a temp job at a bank, and so she went to a particular department, and it was really interesting. She had been there for a couple weeks, and just kind of her observations, like the supervisor was a generation older than a lot of these young folks that were working for her. And the atmosphere was like totally casual, so lax. In fact, she was surprised that they got anything done, which kind of explained why they needed a temp worker, and that's what her role was. And like, for instance, these uh, younger folks would like sit on the desk of their supervisor, you know, and they're all these chit-chatting and making jokes. You'd take super long breaks, you know, like lunchtime, like leave early, show up, you know, real late. It was like nothing was getting done. Uh, lots of fun, lots of friendliness, lots of laughter and joking around, except for this, this one gal. She said there's a, a gal that she's, she's not been there very long. Um, she is like in her 30s. But between the supervisor and the kind of the younger crowd that was just having a good time at the work, they would just like malign this gal in her 30s. They had no need for some middle management. They'd, they'd make fun of her. You know how like people like roll their eyes and wink at each other. In her presence, they would mock her like what she was wearing. When she would try to like just involve herself in conversation, like, oh, conversation's over, back off, you know, we're done. And uh, this kind of went on, she, she said, for two weeks. But then the third week that his um, future wife showed up at her temp job at the bank, Wow, everything had changed. All of the young workers that had formerly been just goofing off were like totally working, like locked onto their computer screens and writing things down, very attentive to the phones, no messing around whatsoever. Turns out that the supervisor had been replaced. Uh, things had really changed. And why the new supervisor? Why, very familiar. You know that 30-year-old lady that they kept ripping on? Guess who the new supervisor was? She was. It turned out that the bank had, three weeks earlier, they knew about the problems and the inefficiency and the ineffectiveness. They had actually hired her to be the new supervisor. But for her to get a good feel of the climate and the work environment and the ethic uh, that was being presented, why they said, we're just going to insert you there and and you just kind of observe and, and see what you can see. And she did. And she said, "Why everybody was working on check. She said, there was like even fear in some of those people's eyes. I tell you this because... That's kind of how it worked when Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago. He was kind of like the incognito supervisor. And he went and he made observations of how the Jewish leaders were leading. The treatment of the people. Were were they cultivating holiness of heart, righteousness, justice? Was there a love for the people? Were they cultivating hearts that worship God in authenticity, in genuineness, Was there a willingness to serve? Was there graciousness among the people? Was the word being taught and going forth? And it says Jesus was making his observations. And he was actually confronting the Jewish leaders. The leadership of Israel would have nothing of him. Why? One word. Pride. You see, pride permeated leadership, and as always, pride always leads to a downfall. And when we're talking about pride here, 
In this context, it's the arrogance resulting in an unwillingness to yield and to submit to God. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It is almost like the ethos of our culture. God, if, he's used, if his name is even used, it's oftentimes in a blasphemous way. He is rejected. It's not, he's like not even, it's considered obsolete, has nothing to do with reality, always ignored and maligned, a big joke. But I want you to know that that was our condition. Before knowing Christ, we walked in the pride that said, we really don't need God. In fact, that might be your story right now. In fact, you're even surprised that you're even here because it's always been about you and your self-sufficiency. And God has been conveniently put on a shelf and you could ignore him at all times. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to follow his word. You don't have to submit and yield to his leadership in your life because you know why? Arrogance and pride has taken over. And just how powerful is pride? Have you ever considered it? How powerful is pride? Well, that's what Jesus is going to confront head on. And he does so in a rather dramatic way by telling an unforgettable story about Israel's past, its present, and its future, and who Jesus really is. Now, you remember, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, just like we saw last week in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, there was an issue of authority. And the leadership of Israel wanted to know, by what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? This is on Wednesday of Passover week, just two days before the Friday, where they will kill him. And so Jesus then gives them this unforgettable story on the power of pride. The first thing you need to know about pride is that pride blinds us to God's blessings. Pride has a way of blinding us to God's blessings. So now that Jesus has the full authority of every, full, uh, full attention of everyone, he is completely showing himself to be the absolute authority. He is on the Temple Mount. You've got thousands of, the, of people that are gathered around him. You have these columns, these Corinthian columns in the temple, just like a forest of them. It, the, the temple itself, where Jesus is at, and the thousands are around him, and the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, the Sanhedrin come to confront him. This all takes place on the temple. It is a magnificent structure. In fact, it's considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. Powerful, majestic, awe-inspiring. It is here that Jesus tells this story. And so he begins, chapter 12, verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The them that he's speaking to are the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that are confronting him, that want to put an end to him. And notice that he speaks to them in parables. Now, a parable is literally means to lay alongside. You take something that is familiar, you lay it aside something that is not as familiar. You paint a picture in one's imagination using the listener's own experience. I love the way that Warren Wearsby gives the dimensions that come from a parable, which was one of Jesus' uh, most popular ways of teaching. Wearsby says this, the power of the parable can be seen this way. A parable starts off as a picture that is familiar to the listeners. 
But as you carefully consider the picture, it becomes a mirror in which you see yourself. And many people do not like to see themselves. So it starts off as a picture, but then it becomes a mirror, you know, and you can, you can see yourself. You can see directly how this is a confronting an issue in your heart, and wow, many people, they don't like that at all. You see people, they don't like to look in a mirror, but to look in a mirror of a parable, why, it shows you what's going on inside in your heart. It explains why oftentimes that when Jesus would give a parable, the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him because they saw what he was saying. But Wiersbe goes on to write this, but if we see ourselves as needy sinners and ask for help, then the mirror becomes a window through which we see God and his grace. See that picture, which becomes a mirror, which becomes a window. And so Jesus is giving this parable. And when he starts speaking, like all of the people listening would know like, oh, we know all about that. Because he is directly quoting from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This was very familiar to everyone. And he's presenting uh, a story that they would know very well. He says, a man planted a vineyard. And vineyards were extremely popular all throughout Israel. It was really kind of one of the backbone industries of the country. And this was a very familiar scene that you would have a landowner, and there were wealthy landowners, many of which lived in Israel, some that lived even in other parts of the Roman Empire, and they would have these vineyards, and this was a common sight. In this case, this man is a landowner, and so he's going to develop a vineyard, and he does everything he can to assure the success of this vineyard, that it's going to be plentiful and have much fruit. And so notice how Jesus just explains it. He walks right through Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. He planted a vineyard, and notice he put a wall around it. So there are rocks in the field, and what you do is you have to take those rocks out, And what he did is he built a wall around his vineyard. He had built a wall to prevent uh, animals from coming to like that would destroy these young plants or the vines. And if you've ever been involved in farming, it seems like rocks just kind of grow up out of the ground. Okay, if you're going to cultivate the soil, you got to get those big rocks out of there, and that's exactly what happens. So he's planted this vineyard. He builds a wall around it. Notice this: he's ready for an abundant harvest because he dug a vat under the wine press. So you've got this wine press where the grapes would go, the grapes would be pressed, out would come the juice, and he has dug a vat to collect all that juice, okay? So he is fully setting everything up to have amazing harvests, everything you would need. And furthermore, not only has he got a, a vat under the wine press, but he built a tower, a tower that would be used for protection, for observation, where the workers could come and have shelter, where tools and seed could be uh, put for in different times. Everything needed for success was there. And then Jesus then makes an addition to the Isaiah 5 text and says that he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And this is what would happen. You would have landlords. They could be absentee landlords. And they would set up a contract with tenant farmers, and it would be anywhere from a quarter to 50% of the harvest would go to the owner, and the rest would go to the people that worked the land, then worked, in this case, the vineyard. This all made sense. This was something they're very familiar with, and it'd be fully expected that, you know, if it's like 50%, that when harvest time came, 
Uh, it would be oftentimes given in wine and a vineyard. 50% would go to the landlord. 50% was for those that were working the land. That's how it worked. And vine growers, vines, and vineyards was such a part of the identity of Israel that even on the very temple that Jesus is giving this parable, there was a sculpted vine that went from the porch that, to the entrance of the holy, of, holy, of the holy place that was 35 yards tall. Massive. This was such a part of their identity and their thinking. You see, all of these are blessings that came from God. He is like the landowner. And the Father is good and gracious, and he gives everything that is needed for thriving, for success, for fruitfulness, for an abundant harvest. And when it came to the farmers and the tenants, and people would understand from Isaiah that he's speaking about the Jewish leaders, the leadership, their religious leaders, those who were to care for them and cultivate them, that they were to be led well. And it's not a mystery of what spiritual leadership is. Because like in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God speaks of the character of the leaders and what spiritual leadership is. So like just even from like Ezekiel chapter 34, he would speak of spiritual leaders feed the people, they bring healing when they're hurt, care for them, they are those who search for the lost, and they lead well. They cultivate holiness of heart, a love for God, obedience to the word, care for righteousness and justice. That's what spiritual leaders do. And I want you to know that when you have a heart that treasures the creator, you see and have eyesight for the blessings that God gives. When you recognize and worship and have a heart for the creator, you realize that, wow, God has given us everything. But pride, pride is powerful. And pride blinds you to God's blessings. If you really are struggling to find like any blessings from God, in fact, you don't really think in those terms, it's all about what you don't have and how this is just miserable, and you're pretty kind of like just bitter inside, perhaps pride has a root in your life that's going pretty deep and has some pretty serious implications. Pride blinds us to God's blessings, but let me show you something else. Pride hardens our hearts to God's purpose and God's people. Well, look at verse 2. So Jesus continues the story. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. That's what you would expect. Here is an emissary and representative of the landowner. Uh, it would take up to five years for a vineyard to actually start producing grapes, okay? So it's not like you planted the first year and like, well, instant harvest. No, you're going to have to wait about five years. But Harvest has come. Here comes a servant. He is coming to get the fulfillment of the contract, whatever it is. Everything's great. And everybody's locking in with the story like, yep, this all makes sense. But one of the things that's fascinating about Jesus' parables is that he would include elements that would be so surprising, so shocking. It's part of what makes them so memorable. And that's exactly what happens here. You'd expect that they just kind of give him some of the harvest. But look at verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You can almost hear the gasp of all thousands of people that are around Jesus like, oh, what? what? No, who does that? And the word beat, 
uh, in the Greek has the idea of like removing skin, okay? Like you ever heard of that phrase like beat someone to a pulp? That's what's happened here. They, they beat him in such a way that he's bleeding. His skin is hanging on him. They completely mistreat him. This is outrageous cruelty, flagrant ingratitude, open defiance. But then look at verse 4, and again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. They literally struck him in the head. Maybe in contemporary slang, they, they bashed his head in. What in the world? Who, who are these criminal tenant farmers? But the violence only escalates. Look at verse 5. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. An amazing display toward these hostile, recalcitrant vine growers. This landowner, he just keeps sending people their way treating them with dignity, respect, honoring the contract that they have, persistent, patient, love. I want you to know that everyone was completely locked on to Jesus' words, and they all knew with absolute clarity he was speaking to them about their history because this is exactly what had happened with the prophets that God sent, the kings, the monarchy, and the oftentimes the religious leaders, do you know how they treated God's prophets? Pretty much just like this. You need to know that if you are an emissary from God, you speak his word with clarity and boldness. You've got courage and guts. You're going to take some heat. If you want to be a chameleon, just kind of match in the crowd. You have no idea of what spiritual influence is, nor do you want any part of it guess what? Probably aren't going to take a whole lot of heat because you're just kind of going with the flow of the culture. But if you are a prophet, you are one who has been entrusted with God's word, you're going to take some consequences. And many of the prophets were mistreated by the people and even died just horrendous deaths. Let me give you some examples. Like Elijah was forced to hide and was driven into the wilderness by the monarchy. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern where they like collect water and eventually he was stoned to death. Isaiah, according to their legend, was actually put into a hollowed out tree and they sawed him in two. Isaiah, the very one that Jesus is quoting, that prophet, sawed in two. Ezekiel was ejected. Elijah and Amos had to run for their lives. Micaiah, was a prophet that they smashed his face in. Zechariah was murdered between the temple and the altar. And the greatest of all the prophets, remember what Jesus said, is John the Baptist. And the Romans cut his head off. And the Jewish leaders, did they step in and say, whoa, enough is enough? No, thank you. He was kind of thorn in our side. We didn't like being called a brood of vipers. This was the history of Israel, and everyone knew it as Jesus gave the parable. You know, it's a really good thing that you and I are not God, because the people of Israel, they wouldn't have even made it to Mount Sinai. We'd have a really short Old Testament, right? That's it. 
We've done this enough. That's it. It's over. But if you want to see the patience of God, his love, his mercy, his commitment to his people, time and time again, sending prophets that were abused, beaten, sometimes even killed. You see, God intends for there to be spiritual fruit, a harvest. That's what he's looking for. They understand that a spiritual fruit of justice, righteousness, holiness toward God, a love for him, worship, that the people are being taught. I mean, if you want to see good leadership, look at like Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, what did Ezra do? Well, the reason he was so effective and why he was so good is Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, he set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his ordinances and statutes throughout all of Israel. He studied it. He owned it. He incarnated it. He put it into practice as his own life. And then he taught it to the people. God wants his people led, not by personality. This isn't a popularity contest. It's not about just a cool factor. It is about people growing in their relationship with God, where they're getting truth, the meat of the word, that souls are being cared for, that the lost are being sought, that those that are broken are bringing bring about and get, receiving healing, that God is exalted and his people are growing and maturing. That's the harvest. That's the spiritual harvest. And everything needed for it, God has given you know when your pride takes over, you know what it does? It hardens your heart toward God's purpose and God's people. Let me show you something else about pride. Pride not only blinds you to God's blessings, it not only hardens your heart toward God's purpose and his people, but pride causes us to reject God's son. Jesus is telling the story, everyone is just in shock of what they're hearing This landlord has one more ambassador that he can send, his own beloved son. Take a look. Verse 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. Sound familiar? And he sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. People listening are like, what in the world? They would fully expect that this landowner would muster a whole group of soldiers and with uh, executive power, bringing in the law, he would actually literally destroy these people. He had every right that the law could bring vengeance and justice. That's what they'd expect. To send his son? This would be shocking, inexplicable unacceptable. No one functions like this. This landowner says, yeah, I've got one left. My beloved son, I'm going to send him. They will respect him. Has the idea to show deference to someone who has a position of great status. They will respect him. Is that what's going to happen? Well, take a look. Think of it. Jesus speaking these words at this time. Verse 7. But those Vine growers said to one another, <laughs> This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Let me tell you what's going on here. You see, these vine growers, they're like, Wait a second, the landowner's not coming. He must be dead. 
That's why the sun is showing up. And so their thought is, you know what? If we kill the sun, this land will be ours. And there's some logic to their thinking. Because the Jews practiced that if there was land that was vacant, that no ownership was established, that the first one that would make a claim to it would become the new owner throughout a, over a certain period of time. And so that's exactly what they're thinking. Like, oh, guess what? The landowner's dead. All we have to do is kill the son, and it's ours. It's really interesting. You know, Jesus said this is exactly what's going to happen. Remember Mark chapter 8, verse 31? Jesus began to teach his followers that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be directed, rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So that's their thought. Well, we'll just kill him and it'll be ours. And look at verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw, out, threw him out of the vineyard. They, they treat him as if he's just common roadkill. The son, the beloved son of the landowner. I find this to be shocking. Because why would they want the dead body out of the vineyard? Because the law said, well, that would make like all of this unclean. No one would buy grapes and grape juice and wine from you if you got a dead body in there, right? And they're kind of, they're really concerned about that. So we'll just toss this body out of the vineyard. And yet, they have seemingly no concern about the mistreatment of people, abuse, or even murder. I want you to know you can be religious and be really twisted. And that's what Jesus is driving at. You see, the Jewish leadership, they so despised the Messiah when he arrived. They were so caught up in their pride and their arrogance, they thought, we will just kill him to maintain our position of authority and power. Everyone would be completely locked on. This was an absolute atrocity as Jesus then presents this. You see, pride causes us to reject God's son. But there's something else that you need to know about pride. Pride without repentance leads to God's judgment. Pride without repentance leads to God's judgment. Well, look at verse 9. Jesus asked them, well, what will the owner of the vineyard do? When Matthew records this, Matthew records that the, the leadership actually jumps in and speaks and says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he'll give the vineyard to others. They literally condemn themselves. And Mark records here when Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. He will destroy, has the idea of loss or a loss forever. He's going to destroy them. And Jesus is speaking of the reality of what is about to come. You see, this is exactly what God does. You need to know that God's patience, his long-suffering, has a limit. And for these men, this leadership, their continual rejection of God, his prophets, and now the Messiah, that end is now. In fact, in A.D. 70, there is going to be a horrific judgment that is going to come upon Israel. It's not the first. Do you remember that God had brought judgment using other nations two different times? 
For instance, in 722 BC, God used the Assyrians to bring judgment on the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel. In 586 BC, God used the Babylonians to bring judgment on the southern kingdom, Judah. And God is going to use the Romans in AD 70. And the slaughter was great. Thousands and thousands of Jews were killed. Thousands of others were made slaves. And the place was destroyed. You know this temple that's magnificent? Huge wonders. I mean, they'd been working on this thing for decades. It still wasn't done when Jesus is teaching in it. Rome is going to come and completely level it. It's going to bring it down to its base. It's going to be down to its mount. In fact, you can see it today. It is the temple mount. But there are no sacrifices, no celebrations, no worship, no temple. Why? It's all gone. Why? Because God brought judgment, just like Jesus said. He will destroy those vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. He's going to give the responsibility for cultivating spiritual growth, vitality, health, and relationship with God to others. Who are those others? The most unlikely, the apostles themselves. God is going to entrust them. Remember the apostles, they already had authority over demons, right? And to be able to do healing in Jesus' name. The next night, Jesus is going to give them a statement and tell them in this upper room discourse and tell them, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be used to give my word. These are the ones that they're going to be given to. And so they're listening to all of this. And then Jesus says this, have you not even read the scripture? You see that in verse 10? And he begins to quote Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Haven't you even read your Bible? Don't you see how all of this is being fulfilled right before your very eyes? He said, the stone, which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus doesn't end the story with the death of the beloved son, because that's not where the story ends. Jesus now switches from the parable of speaking about the vine growers and the vineyard to the metaphor of a building and a cornerstone. And he speaks of the reality that this stone, this cornerstone that was rejected, why, it is absolutely essential. So like in architecture, the cornerstone is absolutely important to set the foundation and for correct angles. Everything is based on the cornerstone. And what Jesus is presenting is that I am the cornerstone. You're rejecting me, but you need to know that the entire structure and symmetry of God's kingdom rests upon me because I am the king. It's all about me. But the Jewish leadership, like, no, we don't want him. You're inadequate. You're imperfect. You're not what we like. In fact, you're trying to rob us of our authority, and we're going to kill you. And that's exactly what happens just a couple days from now. And so Jesus tells them the stone which the builders, the builders speak of the Jewish leaders. That's how they're referred to in Isaiah. Interesting, when Peter preaches a sermon after the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, he told the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, he said this, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. The entire kingdom, all of it, all based on the cornerstone, Christ. You rejected him and you killed him. And it's very interesting that Jesus is using Psalm 118, 
This is very familiar territory for all of the Jews listening. Do you know why? Because Psalm 118 was sung part of the Passover festivities. Where are all these couple million of Jews, millions of Jews gathered in Jerusalem? What's going on? They're there to celebrate the Passover, meaning they're singing this song. And Jesus says, you know that song you're singing? I'm it. I am that cornerstone. And he says in verse 11, this came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you read that? This came from the Lord. You thought it was foolishness, but you need to know that this is from him, God himself, Yahweh, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, you know, they don't lack evidence. They just simply won't accept what the evidence points to. You see that today. There are many people that see that indeed Jesus is God, that he's the promised Messiah. They know about his miracles. They know about his death and resurrection. They know the facts, but they will not have him. That's true of these people because you want to see how they respond? Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him and yet feared the people. (laughs) There it is again. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You see, Jesus Christ is either the judgment stone for you if you reject him or the cornerstone for the entire basis of your life and your eternity. But for the Jewish leaders, they refused the message, they had repudiated the messengers, and they had rejected the Messiah. And you know what awaits them? Judgment. And they walk away. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You need to know that the power of pride is only overcome by the person of Christ. And so I would like to ask you, is Christ your cornerstone? Honestly, is Jesus Christ the cornerstone cornerstone of your life? I know you're familiar with him. You know a lot about him. Probably know some Bible verses. I'm asking, is your life resting and built upon him? Does he set the line of direction? Is, it, is this life about you and your kingdom, about Christ the king and his kingdom? Is Christ the cornerstone of your life? God has so designed it that the only way you can really have genuine spiritual life is if your life is resting and trusting in Christ, the cornerstone. You will either reject him or receive him. But remember the gospel. Like James says in James chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you proud in heart? Arrogant? I will not submit to God. I don't care about him. I don't care about his word. I No. God is opposed to you. You are standing in the path of judgment. But he gives grace to the humble. The grace of forgiveness, the grace of life, the grace of purpose, meaning abundant eternal life is found in Christ and Christ alone. And friends, I want every single one to know him and to build their life upon him. You see, when Christ is the center of our life, he's the cornerstone, 
You're no longer bound by the power of pride. You have the power of his presence. And what does it look like when Christ is the cornerstone of your life? Why, it's the exact opposite of what you see with the Jewish leaders. I mean, when Christ is your cornerstone, you see God's blessings in our life. It leads to rejoicing and worship. Like you reckon, like, wow, everything I've got. Wow, I've got God. It's from him. Wow, he's awesome. Praise you. You also find that our hearts rejoice in God's purpose and his people. Instead of rejecting God's people, rejecting God's purpose, like you embrace it, you rejoice in it. Furthermore, we love to build our lives on God's son. You don't reject him, but actually you love the privilege and the joy it is to do that. And furthermore, you have the hope of eternity. Why? Because Jesus has been judged in our place. You want to understand the cross? It's Jesus dying in our place. That's what happens when Christ is your cornerstone. And so ask God, Lord, is this decision, is this choice, is this direction, is this activity, how does it square with Christ and his word? People that are building their life upon Christ are asking this question, how does it square with Jesus Christ and his word? And so as you think about it, like in your personal life, with your family, on this Father's Day, dads, you want a legacy that lasts, just like we sung a blessing to children, my children, their children, their children? Build your life on the cornerstone of Christ. Leave the results to him, but, but you're tried and true. You're setting this direction. It's based on Christ and his word. And then in your own ministry, ministry is not about you. Ministry is about glorifying God, being involved in his kingdom. And how do you do that? Make Christ the cornerstone. Several years ago, there was a rather fascinating discovery in a, in a Scottish estate where they found a painting that had been kind of relegated as a cheap imitation. And they were doing this BBC uh, recording on art, and this Dr. Benor uh, Grosvenor discovered this particular painting. Now, he had some familiarity with it because this, this painting... Um, was originally understood to be a Raphael, the great Renaissance artist. And yet, in 1841, when they presented it as part of a presentation on Raphael at the British Institute, the, the authorities at the time, leading experts in art, said, no, nah, we think this is an imitation done by this Italian guy that tried to imitate Raphael. And so they dismissed it as being just a cheap imitation. That was in 1841. In 1899, this particular painting, and there it is if you want to see it, uh, was valued at $26, okay? So like <laughs> something like cheap that you get like at a flea market. It's, if you want to look at it, it's great. It doesn't cost you anything. It was thought to be worthless, $26 to be precise. But this Dr. Benor Grossvener, when he was... Um, doing this show, he, he saw this painting. They actually had it in a dark corner in this room, in this estate. He's like, he knew a little bit about its history, that it, it was claimed that it was actually an original uh, from Raphael. They started looking at the paint strokes, and as they did in the authenticating process, they discovered that indeed it is exactly what it was originally stated to be, an original. And after authenticating it, its value went from $26 to $26 million. And yet for years it had been dismissed as a forgery, 
worthless, treated as something that just to be disregarded. I tell you this because that's how a lot of people treat Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with him, but he's pretty worthless to me. Not much there. Maybe a few nice sayings, and that's about it. Let's keep moving. But when you see him for who he is and recognize that he is the promised Messiah, the cornerstone of all salvation and the kingdom, when God awakens your heart and you not only see your sin, but how Jesus is the Savior, he's of immeasurable, innumerable value to you. The only sure foundation in life is the cornerstone of Christ. Everything else, it's going to fail Your building will fall unless Jesus is the cornerstone. And at Fellowship Bible Church, I just want you to know he is the cornerstone. Everything built on him. Our mission is to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. We're not about popularity. We're not about garnering your attention. We are about Jesus Christ and him glorified, people to come to truly know him and to wise to be built to the fullness of maturity in him. That is why we take discipleship so seriously. So friends, remember this. The only sure foundation in life is the cornerstone of Christ. Let's pray.